Hello, welcome back to On The House. I'm Sam Jima, Liberal Democrat MP for East Surrey, and this week we're able to get back to our original plan of a pint after Parliament because Parliament is back in session. As the Speaker John Berko said, the Supreme Court ruling means that prorogation never happened. It was all a dream, and the House should consider itself merely adjourned. So we are back in business as usual. Or are we, Philip? I don't know, Sam. I mean, unfortunately, um, the widespread delight that Parliament is now able to get back to doing its job was quickly overshadowed by one of the ugliest sessions in memory. Boris Johnson returned from the US from a love-in with President Trump and to put on an unrepentant, self-justifying display that often strayed into the offensive. I'm Philip Lee. I'm the Liberal Democrat Member of Parliament for Bracknell. Sam and I will be talking about what Supreme uh, about the Supreme Court judgment, uh, Boris Johnson's antics in the House. I'd also add Geoffrey Cox's uh, antics into the House, actually, Sam, and where next for Parliament and the government's Brexit policy. Uh, and this week we've got a special guest here to share their take on the tumultuous week in Westminster. Our guest is Stephen Doughty, a great friend and fantastic MP, the Labour and Cooperative MP for Cardiff South and Panath. He's on the Home Affairs Committee, former Shadow Minister for both Business and Foreign and Commonwealth Affairs. But what really, um, I, what I really admire about Stephen is how strongly independent-minded he is. In 2016, he resigned from the shadow cabinet in protest against the sacking of Labour's Europe spokesman. He backed Owen Smith's leadership challenge against Jeremy Corbyn. And he's number three on Wales Online's pink list of the most influential LGBT plus people in Wales. But Stephen has, is a formidable parliamentarian and one that is on the news very often but um, also keeps his light under a bushel. He's been part of all the key moments in Parliament to stop a no-deal Brexit but also to gain a people's vote. Hello Stephen. Hello. Welcome to On The House. Pleasure. How are you? I'm fine. It's been a bit of a crazy uh, crazy few days, that's for sure. Um, some pretty serious and heavy politics, um, but some good work being done as well. But um, I think, as you said, crazy politics. But um, the problem is we've all got anaesthetised to the craziness of the current political environment. Every week, something new happens... That well, it's is good dramatic. for us. It's, it's, it's sustaining our podcast. <laughs> I mean, I mean, otherwise it'd be really boring, wouldn't it? No one would be listening. But 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 it's context is it's difficult to give anything context. Stephen, let me. How do you put what's happened this week into any kind of meaningful context for I mean, our listeners? I mean, it was completely extraordinary scenes, both in the Commons and sort of outside, and some of the stuff that's happened in the last um, few hours even, and um, some pretty horrific stuff, actually. Um, Jess Phillips, unfortunately, has had an office attacked, and we're just hearing reports of um, some really disgusting threats against members of Parliament um, and their, their teams, um, and, of course, some quite extraordinary scenes um, involving the Prime Minister and Geoffrey Cox. Um, actually, also some quite extraordinary scenes away from the cameras. I mean, 
screen um, you'll both know this often what's caught on the cameras in the chamber is not actually what's going on around the the, the back of the speaker's chair or in the corridors outside and um, particular sort of slightly disturbing moment for me was seeing the uh, Lord Chancellor Robert Buckland um, completely um, losing his temper um, as myself and some others sort of questioned him across the chamber about whether um, he should be serving in this government you know when Boris Johnson was attacking the judges and the independent of the judiciary and he literally lost his temper sort of shouted and motioned at me to almost go out for a you know a dust up behind the chair and um, uh, and stormed off and obviously I didn't engage with that and I didn't go out behind the chair with him but I think it does show the sort of how tempers are fraying and how you know people um, in 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 government on all sides are, are really feeling the pressure. I mean, that's an accurate sort of description from what I saw anyway. I'm sure, um, Philip, was your perspective in terms of what happened uh, post sort of uh, when Boris Johnson arrived yeah. back on the plane uh, from New York. But I remember and feeling quite envious of you. You were in the House of Commons immediately after the Supreme Court judgment and you tweeted a picture of yourself back at work. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I should have been there. I mean, <laughs> How come you were there so quickly? And what's your perspective on the judgment? Let's let's start with that. You, know, you have Lady yeah, Hale I mean. uh, making that historic judgment and you were one of the first MPs in the Commons commenting on it. Well, I, I'd been um, at Labour conference actually down in Brighton and um, obviously been a fairly tumultuous sort of uh, 48 hours down there. Um, and um, But the Supreme Court judgment, when we knew it was going to take place, I thought, well, I'm going to be back around. I want to be around to see what happens and, if necessary, go in and, and have meetings with colleagues in, in Westminster. And I was actually doing the Victoria Derbyshire show when the uh, the judgment came through and so I had to sort of live react to that on the show with a number of other people. Um, and... You know, I'd expect maybe a split judgment or a you know a, a, a less clear. Did direction. you know the government was going to lose? Um, I had a strong so sense they were going to lose. I had a strong sense they were going to lose after their behaviour and the fact they hadn't actually presented any clear evidence to back up their position. Um, but I didn't expect such an emphatic judgment. And when it came through, and you realise just how historic and how serious it was, I immediately hopped in a black cab, uh, got to uh, the uh, the Commons, went in, um, obviously met others in the in the chamber, but also uh, then went into a series of meetings with colleagues because. The crucial thing is that, um, you know, it's, it wasn't just sort of being there for the moment. It was actually, you know, we're going to get back to work and we need to start rapidly um, working out how we're going to continue the campaigning that we've all been doing on so many issues. Um, so a week ago, a week before, I thought it wasn't going to be the case the government lost. And then just speaking to lawyers, it was clear that the case was going in, the, uh, going in a particular direction. But I don't think I would have expected such a powerful, clear statement as, as we, we actually eventually got. But like Sam said earlier, I mean, we've got so much going on in politics at the moment, but we need to move on from the Supreme Court judgment and talk about yesterday in Parliament. And it wasn't just the Prime Minister's performance, which I'm sure, Stephen, you're going to have some views on, but actually Geoffrey Cox's performance was also quite something to behold and it actually made me think that there were obvious lines to take there was a it was it was coordinated how they were going to deal with all of these uqs and the questions and the state and and and, uh, the statement from the prime minister and it was literally it was like attack is the best form of defense and indeed i found jeffrey cox he looked like a sort of a wounded animal cornered and um, he was lashing out indiscriminately and where you would have expected a sort of a, a performance with humility you got, you essentially got this rather bombastic sort of um, you know okay I got it wrong okay I got this but you know uh, and sort of it was quite aggressive and 
I personally didn't think it was at all appropriate. I don't know what you thought, Stephen. Yeah, I thought it was very inappropriate. And actually, I say this as somebody who's had quite a lot of respect for Jeffrey Cox in the past. I mean, the job of an attorney general is a difficult one. Um, it is a you know a professional uh, position. You often get caught between um, you know your professional judgment and the you know the wishes of the government. Um, and um, obviously, he'd been through one controversy already uh, with the advice that he gave to Theresa May about the backstop. And, so and actually, he's already been held in contempt of parliament. Well, in in, in Indeed, and 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 there's been um, a whole series of of, of of issues. But I always thought, you know, maybe he's a bit maligned, he's a bit um, poorly treated, and it felt to me a bit as well that he was being a bit thrown under a bus mm-hmm. um, uh, over the issue of the advice on the prorogation, because it's very clear to me who was responsible for coming up with that, which was um, the Prime Minister Dominic Cummings, Jacob Rees-Mogg, and various other assorted advisers around them. Um, but when he came in then, Jeffrey Cox, and started off actually in quite a calm way and then suddenly went into this sort of extreme bluff bluster, like you say, sort of flailing around like some sort of wounded animal, um, it was very clear that a lot of that was scripted, it was planned, and mm. it was uh, designed, uh, I think, to be simply clipped and put on social media. I mean, it's very blatant where this is coming from. And, of course, the same lines were then used by the Prime Minister later on. And, you know, I think people can see right through some of that. But, unfortunately, a lot of people who don't watch the whole of the session of Parliament or watch the whole of a particular sitting, they may only see the one or two clips where he's talking about, you know, quite shamefully, a dead Parliament and using very, very inflammatory language. Um, and, of course, that might be clipped and now shared, you know, thousands of times on, you know, the Conservatives' you know twitter account or whatever it might be and you know this is all being done of course by this master of you know sort of uh, media and social media manipulation dominic cummings what, what, what has surprised me in the last 48 hours is that the attorney general seems to be acting like a barrister with a client rather than a law officer of this country in which he's advising her majesty's government mm-hmm. you know if you're advising a client it's you serve your client and win or lose the other ones that are paying you the money but, but I- here it's the future of the country at stake and our constitution at stake and so many times in jeffrey cox's um statement to the commons he kept referring to what you do if you were at the bar still but he's not at the bar he's a law officer added to that for me as being the concern that the Johnson government is clearly willing to mislead <laughs> uh, mislead the house mislead the public and um, it's evident by um, uh, this court case and we have the attorney general being sort of being put in a position where he's got to serve the government's purposes in that direction and Johnson on the other hand is a campaigner he's not behaving like yeah. he's prime minister at all and and, and, and this was let's be absolutely clear, a grubby plot from start to finish. I mean, I don't know if I've told you both the story of, you know, how I managed to find out the prorogation was going to happen. I, I remember you telling me that night. In the middle you, of the night, the, yeah. The, the, t- t- yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was, I mean it, was, it was quite extraordinary. I, I essentially had come back from launching the Church House Declaration, which was that if they tried to prorogue, we would sit in Church House and we would have debates and so on. And we were actually, of course, planning to do that until the Supreme Court brought us back, thankfully. Um, but um, I got back very late to Cardiff and I got a tip-off from a couple of journalists who texted me very late tonight saying, we've heard this very weird rumour going around about um, prorogation and 
and possibly ministers going up to uh, Scotland to see the Queen. And I said, I said, surely not true. So you call the palace? Yeah. So I, so I, I, I thought, well, the only way to find out about this is I'm going to call Buckingham Palace. So I, well, I called the Privy Council office. Of course, no answer. But, but how did you get the number? Well, it's, it's publicly just... available. Um, so, and but, 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 uh, you, you... I'm not going to read it uh, out loud, but you can you can find it. Um, but, and but I, and you, I, you got through the switchboard. Yeah. So I got through to the switchboards. I'm Stephen Doughty. Yeah. A member of Parliament. Yeah. And and I said I've been discussing with some Privy Councillors um, who are very interested to know whether or not there is a meeting of the Privy Council tomorrow um, because this is a very significant constitutional issue. And es- essentially, I got a you know a, d- a denial from a press officer that uh, this was happening, or at least a non-denial. You know, a, I don't really know what's going on. Story. I don't want to blame the individual officer. Probably didn't know. Um, and of course, no answer from anybody else. But I was able to ascertain that the Queen's private secretary had gone to Balmoral, which of course made me slightly suspicious um, because they don't go up there all the time and um, they go there when the business is to be transacted anyway over the course of the next few hours i was able to establish that in fact three privy councillors jacob reese mogg being one of them were on their way to scotland and we were able then to alert uh, the media so that we could get cameras to the airports and to balmoral and then of course by the early morning we had uncovered the full thing and then that would then broke in in, in the media the government of course his plan had been to secretly carry this meeting out, um, get it agreed by the Queen, brief the Cabinet afterwards, um, explain this to the world afterwards, and probably not um, come to explain it to Parliament or the public until much afterwards. So immediately I was like, no, this has been planned for weeks. Um, and then we were subsequently able to find that out in some of the documents that were revealed during the court case that had been planned since early August. No, I remember you texting me, and I was in the US, it was the middle of the night, saying, do you know anything about this? I'm thinking... What's he on about? But I think that, I mean, your work that night meant that the public and parliament gained probably 24, 36 hours on the government in terms of knowing that prorogation was going to happen. And in a sense, that shaped the whole debate, right? I mean, the whole, it was being done in secret. Um, they had booked different flights. You know, Jacob Rees-Mogg was on the same flight as some mm-hmm. of the others. Yep. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, cabinet was in the dark. But the secrecy and the way it was done mm-hmm. immediately shaped the narrative around prorogation. And yes, the government might have tried to deny it at the time, but in a sense, the court case reflects how underhand this was yeah, com- and completely. grubby was for right from the start. Completely, and full credit as well to the, the journalists who had picked this up from some of their own sources and then sort of alerted others to it and tried to clarify whether the story was true or not. But I think, well, like, with so much else actually around uh, around Brexit since Boris Johnson's become Prime Minister, um, essentially the, the heart of government is being run by a small coterie of individuals um, who are breaching every constitutional convention and standard um, and want to conduct themselves in an extremely aggressive, uh, untransparent and, quite frankly, undemocratic way. And so for these people to be talking about, uh, you know, taking back control and will of the people. This is an absolute establishment elite stitch-up at the heart of government and at the heart of the Conservative Party. It goes well beyond prorogation too. It goes to data, it goes to um, the advertising campaigns that are going on, it goes to um, you know the very, very shocking story about how a special advisor, a young female special advisor, was frog-marched out of uh, Downing Street by an armed police officer, poor officer probably just doing their job, but instructed by Dominic Cummings, it seems, um, to do so. So this is, these are really, really dangerous, dangerous precedents to be setting. Politicisation of the police, um, you know, even the other night... Um, Steady. I, yeah. Uh, politicisation of the police, you uh, can't just no, say that. No, politicisation 
of the police. Um, I mean, essentially, uh, the stunt the other day that was done, um, it was criticised by the chief constable of um, the police um, afterwards. Um, you mean the speech yeah, that yeah, uh, the speech Boris did, Johnson gave? Johnson, because he told them that he was going to do a speech about police rec- recruitment and, and, and training, um, but uh, Boris Johnson, you know, went up there, he'd made these promises, that was what it was about. Instead, he started into a party political speech. And um, then the other night, I saw a quite extraordinary picture, which was um, of the chiefs of the general staff, the heads of our armed forces, um, not being sent out uh, by Downing Street, but being sent out by the Conservative Party Twitter account, it's effectively an election advert, um, with the Prime Minister and the chiefs of the general staff. Now, I seriously doubt whether any of them knew that that image was going to be used in that way. But again, it's that sort of breach of convention, which, you know, our armed forces are strictly apolitical, and rightly so, because they have to serve any government of the day. So, I mean, what we've got is we've got a campaign in Downing Street, not a government. Absolutely. There is no project. Yes. And there is no view of where we're going yes. other than and, by and all me- deliver Brexit yes, by all means necessary. And, and the performance in the House yesterday is all part of that campaign. It is people versus Parliament. This is, it's all fits together. And I guess, you know, if, if Dominic Cummings chooses to listen to our podcast, Sam, he will probably turn around and say, you won't know I'm whether sure he's waiting successful for it. or not until we get to a general election. Their problem... Is, is that the timing of that general election, the context of that general election, will shape whether their campaign is successful or not, which brings us, I And guess, they don't control that. Which is why I think yesterday you saw some stuff, which I think was slightly off script, at the dispatch box, which I think is because you're dealing with stressed individuals who are getting extremely upset that their project isn't playing out as they thought it would. Um, to the detail of yesterday afternoon, particularly the... Um, performance by the Prime Minister. I mean, Stephen, I mean, it's... I've seen um, female Labour MPs looking deeply distressed today, wandering around, not quite knowing how to handle the situation, if I'm honest, and I think that that I can have every sympathy with, because... You, you try to not display emotion as a politician sometimes because you want to try to remain calm, behave appropriately, but some of the stuff that was said yesterday was so far off the ballpark. It was just over here, wasn't it? It was so out of order that I think people have been uh, some, somewhat in shock today. I mean, can you give a bit more of an inside? Yeah, I mean, I mean it was genuinely a crossing of the line that I don't think I've ever seen in there. I mean, I, I, I believe in a robust and, you know, I don't mind a bit of rowdy debate, quite frankly. I engage in a bit of rowdy debate in the Commons sometimes. And, you know, there are people I have very rowdy debates with who are then perfectly courteous and civil outside and you get on with and you, you, you function because you're all um, representing your own point of view. Um, but there are some lines that should never be crossed. And I, I found the way that um, the Prime Minister responded to the very genuine concerns um, given the tragic murder of, of, of Joe, who was a, a good friend of mine, my former boss, um, and I knew for many years. Um, I thought his response was utterly extraordinary and deeply shameful. Um, and I think I think also the reaction then and the kind of escalation of that and, and discussion of her, um, again, in the media, is very, very difficult for um, particularly Joe's family um, to have to hear and listen mm. to. And um, I think it's totally inappropriate. Um, you know, Joe was a, an amazing woman. She was extremely robust herself and believed in campaigning um, solidly on many, many issues. Um, you know, and she always used to joke to me, "Don't, don't, don't get emotional. Get on with it." You know, when I, when, when I worked for her, and um, you know, that's the the Joe I remember. And I, I I think we all need to remember that. Um, but 
you know, she she would also want us to all take a look at ourselves. I mean, there were there was you know, there's been unfortunate language and wrong language used on all sides of the house. Um, there's been behaviour in all our parties, which I think, quite frankly, is um, shameful um, at points. And I've seen examples. I'm sorry to say, in all the parties in just the last week, um, and we all need to take a long, hard look at ourselves. Um, you know, ourselves included. You know, and um, we we all need to reflect on that. But having said that, it was very very clear where the extreme invective was coming from yesterday, and that was the prime minister. And what, what surprised me is how this sense of um, two wrongs make a right. You know, just by saying someone else has done something similar, somehow it exonerates you from yeah. using inflammatory uh, um, language. Whereas <laughs> I thought leadership is about not stooping to the lowest common denominator, but actually raising the bar in terms of public debate. But that's not what we're seeing. And yes, you're right that you know, given the emotions are running high on Brexit, lots of people use all sorts of language, but there's certainly no attempt at leadership no. when it comes to the public debate. And, and you'll, you'll know, I mean, and, and any watcher of Parliament will know, when serious, really serious issues are talked about, you know, uh, the tragic death of service personnel or, the, or police officers or, um, or you know, Sunday, or blo- you know yeah, very serious. serious. You know, the House goes into sort of hushed tones and, you know, people, people respect, you know, the, it, these things are well beyond party politics and normal robust debates. And I just found the way that he responded in extraordinary terms yesterday. And I, and I have to say today, he has not made that any better. And um, I saw the Prime Minister myself just a few hours ago um, being challenged by Jess Phillips and other colleagues um, in the middle of one of the votes um, and he was you know not engaging properly then started um, uh, trying to self-justify himself and then started jabbing his finger angrily at at those of us who were watching him he had a sort of meltdown in the in the in the in the lobbies and you know I, I have to say and I say this you know I don't say this about many politicians I think it was Eddie Mayer who interviewed him he is a nasty piece of work an absolutely nasty piece of work, and I think he is being shown up for who, for for what he is, um, and it's right that the public see that and understand it. Well, well Stephen, what is really odd about um, yesterday in Parliament was that the Prime Minister's statement was supposed to respond to the Supreme Court judgment. <laughs> but he only made passing reference to that. And in fact, the only reference he made, he was casting doubt on the judgment. Was that an attempt to distract the House from the judgment, to stop us talking about the judgment? Is this one of Linton Crosby, you know, his um, former strategist, I don't know if he's still working with him, his dead cat strategy where you throw something else out there that's so outrageous that everyone else everyone starts talking about that and not what they want to talk about so none of none of the media are talking about the supreme court judgment which is really damaging for the government or was it really calculated? Can, can, you, can you shed some light? On I, I think that? genuinely it was probably a bit of both. I think there was some genuine calculation in there um, to um, try and distract attention and to kind of turn it back on, you know, Parliament being this big block to his plans and, you know, that it's all our fault and, you know, Supreme Court shouldn't really have got involved. So not to be sort of directly critical, but to kind of, you know, sort of undermine them um, sort of from lots of different angles. But I actually think the mask slipped on a number of points and I, I think, the you know, the pressure is starting to bear. Um, he sees himself 
himself um, trapped and he sees himself unable to carry out the plans that he thought he had and that he'd been told would be able to be carried out by Dominic Cummings and others and he then you know uh, got himself into a situation where he said some I think deeply regretful um, things and behaved in a deeply regretful way um, and he could have done a very simple thing today which was to have said I got it wrong um, I shouldn't have the heat of the moment you know and taken some of the, the heat out of the situation instead he's further escalated it and um, that for me is a, a mark of character that's you know I think that's um, his character on top of probably quite a calculated attempt to distract attentions. Of course, what he's trying to do as well is to goad um, opposition MPs into going for his sort of cut-and-run election, um, which we all know, you know, we're not going to fall for that con. Of course, you know, I'd love to... So he doesn't uh, face the consequences yeah, of his actions. Absolutely. I mean, what, what he would love more than anything else is to be out there bluffing and blustering around the country, um, facing no, you know, real sort of daily scrutiny from from parliament and the, and the media um scripted moments controlled um you know often taken away from the media uh, when he's causing too many problems um and out there running a campaign and we're, we're not going to let him do that and he needs to be held accountable for his actions and then he will um you know face the consequences of them in due course when we um eventually get to a general election yeah. I mean, a small bit of detail and this sort of parliamentary geekery um, that I think this week is Boris Johnson is effectively a do-nothing, break-everything prime minister now, right? Because today we voted on whether or not the Conservatives could have, a, whether we could have a parliamentary recess for the Conservative Party to have mm-hmm. its conference, and the government lost that vote. Now this is this is this is not controversial business at any time. But the government lost the vote because Boris Johnson withdrew the whip from 21 of his own MPs. So he can't even get basic, non-controversial business through the House. And, and some of those MPs, I think, would have actually sort of, you know, generally been quite minded to let him have a recess for a few days for the conference, as convention, you know, normally dictates. Um, but actually, after his behaviour yesterday, and again, the throwing out of all the rules, a lot of people said, you know what, no way, we're not, we're not letting him do that. Parliament is going to sit and we're going to continue to hold um, the ministers and everybody else to account. And just on that, I mean, whether this is whether we're seeing grand strategy at work or chaos and confusion... I noticed in the chamber that clearly, what he, I mean, there have been lots of MPs or some MPs who've been saying they want a deal. They want to vote for a deal as a way out of this. And some of those MPs were the ones he chose to attack yesterday. And what I found interesting is I was in one of the um, rooms in the House of Commons where you can buy a drink, um, called the smoking room, but you can't smoke there. And conservative whips were trying to um, be very nice to Labour MPs there who they thought would vote for a deal. So as Conservative whips were trying to be nice to Labour MPs in the hope that one day they'll vote for a Johnson deal, Johnson was torpedoing their efforts in the chamber by actually um, insulting them. Well, it's a, it's a Jekyll and Hyde government. And I genuinely think this, uh, you know, uh, some of the again, is calculation, but some of it is, I think, a genuine confusion now at the heart of government. I think there are people who would like to see a deal, and um, obviously the civil service and officials and diplomats who are doing their best to um, sort of find different options that might, might work and bring those forward. Um, and then there are others who clearly want no deal um, and want the kind of chaos, chaos strategy. Um, and, you know, those, those two things cannot carry along in parallel for very much longer. Um, either they're going to be going for no deal categorically or they're going to bring a deal back. I sometimes think, you know, listeners, you know, we're all sort of in Parliament, we're wrapped up in it, 
we understand procedure, perhaps not all the time, but generally speaking, we do. And I think we might lose sight of the sort of the simple question sometimes, which is, well, the simple view, which is if I'm in the street, I'm thinking, how come this prime minister who has been found to have lied to the Queen, who tried to do something that was found to be unlawful, who turns up having been back, come to, been to see Trump, maybe that's relevant, and he's come back <laughs> and, he's, and he's behaved in this offensive way, offending people, particularly Stephen on the Labour benches, and yet here we are, he's still Prime Minister, and I just don't, I mean, what's going on? I mean, are we just, are things just changing in politics and we're just living through it? I mean, I don't know, what do you think? Well, I mean, obviously, yeah, I believe he should do the honourable thing and resign. Um, and then, you know, we look at an alternative prime minister and, um, you know, that could come from many quarters at the moment. And obviously, Jeremy Corbyn would get a first um, go at that as leader of the opposition. But um, the reality is, is that I think, I was just saying a short while ago, he, you know, he has to own this. He has to be held accountable for his actions and he shouldn't be allowed to sort of uh, dash off and disappear um, without uh, being held to account by all of us in Parliament. And on the question of, you know, a, a, an election, um, the, the real difficulty, and this is somehow uh, very difficult to explain sometimes externally, but if, if we were to allow a, sort of a, a very, very early election, um, that would allow him to take us out with no deal. And that is why um, there's been the cross-party efforts that you know we've all been involved in, but um, so many others as well. And actually, I, I think actually a, a, a significant degree of, of statesmanship from, from Jeremy Corbyn, from Ian Blackford, from the SNP, from, um, uh, from Joe Swinson, from all, all of the opposition leaders, to not jump into sort of the obvious thing, which would normally be in a situation like this, which is like bring down the government and go for an election, is that actually we've got to secure that extension. We've got to ensure that no deal doesn't happen because as this government has shown, they are willing to throw all conventions and all rules out of the book. Um, and if they crashed us into a no-deal election during that sort of period of confusion or during yeah. an election, that would be utterly, utterly disastrous for the country. So, um, you know, normal but rules don't be, apply. Exactly, but how can it be? I mean, he's had allegations about the mis misuse of, of taxpayers' money to help out a close friend uh, on various delegations. I mean, the lobby are really interested in that story. And hashtag technology it. lessons, yeah. apparently. It, 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 it's... It's almost it's sort of the Teflon. What is it? What what is going to stick to somebody who I would agree with you, Stephen, has a nasty side, and I I saw it once in one meeting. How can it be that he still commands support? That former Conservative colleagues of ours, Sam, are clapping. I mean, first of all, why were they clapping? They used to moan about people clapping in Parliament, as I recall, when I sat on the... Well, on it was clearly the, orchestrated. Yeah. But so yeah. they're actually cheering him on when it is self-evident to any right-thinking person that this individual should not be holding the office of Prime Minister. I... I, I, I I don't see how that's happening, but is it the same as the Trump effect in America? I mean, what, what is this? It's just a new period in, in politics that's affecting more than just Britain. Well, Philip, you and I have left the Conservative Party um, for our reasons, but when I look across the House from the opposition benches now, I see a party that has lost its moral compass, a party that... Used to swear by, a, a, a party that used to swear by Queen and Country. It's not and a in this party. case, <laughs> you it's know, the Queen has been misled and the country's not being put first. It's not the old Conservative Party. What it is, is the Vote Leave campaign. Yeah, revolutionaries. And is the Vote Leave campaign that is determined and dedicated to get the blessing of Nigel Farage. 
Yeah, and, and, and I think a, a, a campaign and a set of individuals now who have taken a great degree of inspiration from Donald Trump and from the likes of Steve Bannon and uh, all the other sort of alt-right individuals who, let's be frank, you know, Brexit is a, is a wedge project for them. This is much, much deeper than just Brexit. Um, this is about a reshaping of uh, British society, the British economy, um, and a whole series of other issues that go well beyond our membership of the European Union. And I think that's what, for me, is one of the most sort of sinister things actually about all of this and it's actually why I think you know there is a danger of sometimes we're so focused on the crucial issue of Brexit we lose sight of some of the other things that they're trying to do I mean you know Dominic Cummings has form on this um, when you look at um, you know his views about um, you know data and you look at some of his uh, praise of certain types of military strategies and, and, and so on and let's not forget you know this this is an individual at the heart of government who in his last blog post before going into Downing Street wrote if necessary ideas need to be forced down people's throats practically at gunpoint now in the current situation we've just been talking about joe cox and others you know i'm sorry to say that is deeply deeply sinister um for somebody to have written you know i would never never think of saying something like that um and you know this is a man now who's at the heart of our government so i think we all need to look very very carefully I think a slide into the sort of culture wars and uh, we're already there dynamic. yeah I, th- I think we are there to an extent but I, th- I think we can hold back the tide you know I have great faith actually in, in sort of the British um, sort of way of doing things and actually the character of you know the British British people and British society actually to step back and say do you know what actually that's not right that's not right and there are there are actually I have to say many conservatives I saw on the benches yesterday who were not clapping uh, there were a large group who were doing it but there were a large group who weren't and they weren't necessary rebels many of them support Brexit, many of them believe, but you could just see in their eyes and you could see in their actions they know that this is wrong, so the question is is what they will do. Um, am I right in thinking that the Brexit referendum and delivering the referendum result is now about so much more than Brexit? Mm-hmm. That there are lots of other agendas um, happening now? I mean, th- that's the feeling that I get. I mean, listening to you, Stephen, this whole idea of reordering British society, whether it's you know, turning us into a Singaporean terms or what it means for welfare, what it means for... That's... None of that was on the ballot paper. No. And and uh, also some quite disturbing views being pushed by some of these individuals on, um, you know, uh, you see the sort of organisations they've worked with, you know, that then link up with some pretty hard-right organisations who've got some really disturbing views on, on race, on women, on LGBT rights, on, on so many other issues. And uh, I find that quite extraordinary. You don't think we sound like conspiracy theorists saying all of this? Uh, look, I'm, I'm not someone who doesn't believe in conspiracy theories and, you know, most things, you know, my view has always been more of cock-up rather than conspiracy when, when something strange happens. However, it is very clear, actually, there has been very, very clear coordination between a number of these individuals and actually a number of countries. And that's before we even get on to talking about um, the links with a certain large Eastern European country um, and, and the questions about how they've attempted to interfere in, in Western um, democracies and, and election campaigns and referenda. Now, it would be remiss of us not to mention the other political event of the week, which is the Labour Party conference. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was fine. It was fine. I mean, you know, I've watched the video. Do you know the words of the red flag? I do know the words of the red flag. Good. And the internationale, I think, at least part of it. Anyway. The vote that was taken on the floor of conference vis-a-vis the Brexit policy for the Labour Party, I mean... Look, tell us, how, how, how do you see that? I mean, clearly there was some uncomfortable 
bits for the chair chairperson who was who was managing it. But actually, let's get under the surface of this. I mean, it looked pretty balanced in the hall to me. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, late party conference. I mean, and you, you both will know, know we, now know this having been to Lib yeah. Dem conference. The big difference between, between Labour, Lib Dems, and the Conservatives is that Labour and the Lib Dems are genuine decision making yes. and debating and democratic yeah. organisations. Mm. And you might not like the results, and you might not like what comes out of it, but um, most of the time they are, you know, genuinely trying to make choices and decisions and reflect the views of the members. It, of the isn't different the parts. question here that it wasn't <laughs> the results it got wasn't the well, product of a genuine debate I, I, among, you know, amongst members? No, no I mean there, there was a genuine. I mean, look, over ninety constituency parties have put in views that we should take a much more explicitly remain position, which is obviously my own view. Um, many trade unions as well. I mean, like, the way I looked at what went on was actually um, there are uh, huge numbers of people now across the Labour Party, members, um, trade unionists um, and others, and of course the vast majority of MPs who not only believe that Brexit is a disaster, also believe that we should have a, a, a referendum and also that we should be campaigning wholeheartedly for Remain. That's my position. In Welsh Labour, Scottish Labour, our sister party, the SDLP in Northern Ireland, and in Irish Labour, all of that is absolutely crystal clear. London Labour, um, Sadiq Khan, very, very clear on this as Mayor of London. Um, this was essentially a debate around where parts but, of English Labour went. But if there is went. a Labour government, is mm. it Remain or Leave? It would be remain, in my view, very clearly. And I, I think I think that's actually because if you actually look at what Jeremy Corbyn said in in various you know uh, interviews that he did before the conference, he actually said he would not be neutral when jobs were at stake. And you know, there's only one answer to that, which is you know staying in the European Union. I mean, it's clear that jobs are at stake in all the other scenarios. So the debate at conference was lively. It was robust. There were different other dynamics playing out through it. But actually, I look at um, back where Labour policy has travelled over the last two years. And if you'd have told me that, you know, we would now be in a situation where Labour was 100% wholeheartedly backing a people's vote, um, was backing a people's vote that had a Leave deal and remain on the ballot, um, and where the vast majority of MPs, members, trade unionists, and all the different constituent parts of the Labour Party um, were backing um, an anti-Brexit position, um, I would have been quite surprised. And I think it's actually testament to a lot of the campaigning that's gone on, and actually a very unique coalition um, that's built up within the party, because this goes well beyond the usual factions within the Labour Party. Um, you have here a whole group of people from the left to the so-called moderates or centrists in the Labour Party, um, who are all 100% on the same page about this now, um, because we believe the Labour Party is an internationalist party. Um, we're an internationalist socialist party. And actually, for me, I've always believed that the European Union was one of the greatest redistributive and um, socialist projects. This sounds um, like a party political broadcast. Well, you know, are gotta, we Lib Dems happy with yeah. this? <laughs> <laughs> got to you know, make the case for my own side. <laughs> I think we've allowed it's you to, to run one. for too long. I've even, I've, even got, I've even got a red, I've even got a red uh, um, thing on my microphone here and you've got two uh, yellow ones. So it's... Uh, <laughs> I, 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 uh, yeah. Subtle, isn't it? Um, but no, I, I sort of look at where we are now and I think all three of us, we agree on one thing that we, we, we you know, we both Sam and I resigned from government to try to achieve this, which is a final say, a referendum on, on Brexit. I'm beginning to think that we may end up having a general election before that referendum can take place. The numbers on support for the referendum depends on who you talk to. I actually think the numbers have improved, um, but some are doubtful about that. But the order of play, the how do we get to it, might involve having a general election before it happens. 
um, for lots of different reasons. And I, I wonder, you know, I mean, we've been a sort of in the trenches for a long, long time on this, sort of fighting, or, uh, keep fighting the battle, trying to persuade originally, in my case, the Conservative Party colleagues, and, and, and now I'm in a party where everyone's completely convinced it's the right thing to do and have a second referendum. Um, what do you think, Stephen? I mean, how, this has been a long battle. Um, well, look, if we, if, if we have an election, we have an election. Of course, there are a whole series of scenarios where it can happen, and I'm very glad that the Labour policy is now what it is, because um, that means that, you know, we, we would be having a, a, a public vote, we would be having a people's vote um, shortly after that election, and that's a very, very good thing. And, um, and I think it Again, what you know unites all the different parties that we're going into that election on the pro-European side is far more than than divides. Um, obviously, I think it'd be far better to have a referendum first because um, there's a fundamental issue here. If you are a Leave voter who wants to still vote Leave um, for a Leave deal, but you then want a Labour government, you're able to do that. If you are a Conservative... But you can't do that in the general election. No, exactly. If, if you're a Conservative who wants to vote uh, Remain, because they think that's the best choice, but they then want a Conservative government, probably not headed by Boris Johnson, but a Conservative government nonetheless, you can do that. And I think actually there's a real danger if you have an election when Brexit hasn't been resolved in one way or another, that all those issues get mixed up together. You know, a general election is called a general election for, for a reason. Yeah. It is about every other issue. And I would far rather, you know, and as a Labour MP would like to see a Labour government... I want to see us fighting on all the issues that, that we would normally fight on the NHS, on education, on housing, on mental health, on climate change, all those different issues. Um, and, and I actually also think it, there is a real difficulty because it, of course, pits some of us all against each other um, in a general election when actually we all agree on the issue of Brexit. Um, and I think that potentially has some very dangerous effects. So um, I you know, think we have to deal with facts as they are. And I actually think there are going to be many opportunities by which a people's vote can be secured before an election happens anyway. So I, I appreciate one is coming. You know, it's clear there's going to be an election at some point in the next probably six months. Um, and, you know, I fully welcome that and I'm ready for it. But I think it'd be far better. Let's solve the Brexit issue. Let's solve it by people's vote. Draw a line under it and then, you know, get back to talking about all the other issues that, quite frankly, the people want to talk about. I think that's the most compelling argument for why a referendum is different to a general election if you want to break the Brexit deadlock, which is that you could risk disenfranchising mm -hmm. lots of voters mm -hmm. if you had a general election as a proxy for a referendum. Absolutely. As, uh, this is very and of, course, and of course it would be misused, I am sure, by uh, the Brexit party and uh, the Conservatives under Boris Johnson. Um, to promote all sorts of very, very aggressive style politics. Well, he wants to, Johnson wants to muddy the waters. Absolutely. He wants to say it's no deal or Corbyn, knowing that there are a lot of certainly conservative voters who do not want Corbyn. Mm -hmm. And because Corbyn, they think, is a known entity and no deal is an unknown entity, they will back Johnson to stop Corbyn. When actually in a referendum, they might actually vote differently. Yeah, I think this is very, absolutely. very good. Uh, the other thing that I mean, we can talk about trying to solve the political conundrum, but actually, and I think you saw this in the House yesterday, and certainly you see it in the streets of Bracknell, and I'm sure it's elsewhere, and between families and communities, there's been a sort of poison injected into the system. Division, people mm. who, who thrive on division, are, you know, are thriving on division uh, politically, so they're going to maintain that division. For the country to come back together again, and I'm sure you, Stephen, within the Labour Party, you've got friends who are Brexit, who, who mm -hmm. think... Absolutely. Brexit. 
Um, for it to all to come back together again as a country, it's going to take time. But part of the process of going through a referendum, I hope, would be a deliberative process that people would then perhaps take a bit more to pay close attention to the details, to the facts, to the realities of what either Brexit or Remain is and that whatever the outcome actually whether it was brexit or remain that has to be the right way forward for our country because what worries me is is that those divisions are quite deep now the this regional differences differences between generations and unless we actually address this properly properly and in depth i think we're going to be seeing a very very difficult 10 15 yeah. years in politics absolutely and, and i also you know I, i've got friends family relatives who voted leave neighbors obviously constituency voted leave and they're all fundamentally decent people who had very very good reasons for voting the way that they did and um, some of them it was you know uh, very specific concerns about the European Union some of it was um, you know concerns about immigration or they believed the thing on the bus about the health money or they were generally wanting to give you know a, a bloody nose to David Cameron or whatever it might have been and and um, you know th- those reasons are not going to go away I've always been very very clear if, if people choose a credible leave deal so not this absolutely disastrous no deal which Johnson wants to take us into Um, if they choose a credible leave deal and that is the result that is the end of it as far as I'm concerned for the moment Um, but if they want to stay and they want to keep the deal we've got that would be great So next week we have a shortened Tory party conference. Boris Johnson is going to give his speech to the faithful. It will be his first party conference. But it will be detached from the reality of the House of Commons where he has a majority of minus 45. What do we think is going to happen next week? Well, um, the one thing we do know is that Obviously, Parliament is going to carry on sitting now we've defeated that recess motion and we know that we're going to actually be doing a whole bunch of non-Brexit-related business on Northern Ireland, domestic abuse uh, legislation, all of that really, really crucial. Um, but I think it will be very interesting to see the uh, tone and the language and the angle that Boris Johnson goes for at conference in his speech um, and whether or not he appears to be sort of recalibrating thinking maybe I've gone a bit too far this time need to start sounding a bit more like we're going for a deal again and tries to sort of tack a bit more back to the centre or whether he really is in a sort of you know go for broke strategy um, of the sort of aggressive divisive politics that we saw this week um, and you know hopes that that somehow breaks the uh, uh, sort of semi-alliance on the opposition benches and that people fall into an early election I mean I think again people have seen through that cons they're not gonna not gonna do that but um he is clearly trying to, to to wind that up i think it'd be very interesting as well to see you know which conservative mps actually do go up obviously a lot of them are going to be required in the commons potentially for votes on different things philip and i could which go. stay away we, yeah we've just yeah, got exactly. our passes but which but which ones also choose to who would have gone normally who just choose to stay away and um, because they're starting to see the wheels coming off the bus I, I think that's. I think the, what is interesting is that they were clearly planning for conference to be the launch pad for a general election, mm-hmm. and where they will have a free pass, media and everything, and announce whatever policy they want. However deliverable, undeliverable it is, it's not going to be challenged because there's a convention that you allow parties to have the media to themselves during the party conference, but with a truncated conference they are not going to be able to do that as much. 
Boris is not going to be able to bask in the adulation of the conservative faithful for as long as he would have wanted to. Meanwhile, Parliament will be getting on with um, the business. And I think it's more risky for the government now because they did actually get offered by the opposition party, uh, certainly by Labour, um, you know, the chance of a kind of, you know, an agreement about how to handle next week and to agree on legislation that all sides agreed on, like bringing forward the domestic violence bill and other things, um, and uh, therefore not to even have that, that conference recess vote that there was going to be today. However, they chose to ignore that. And Jacob Rees-Mogg, again, completely sort of, you know, unengaging on this last night and going for broke. And I think, you know, there's potential for a few nasty surprises next But this week, is all though. part of the strategy, though. I mean, they wanted the vote again to be Parliament stopping what government wants to do. It's this... Str- it's this... It's the but zombie... It's, it's, it's all this nonsense but, about the zombie but, Parliament, but, but, but dead Parliament. But it's not Parliament. working, is it, Philip? Because... No, Parliament it, will be sitting it, and Parliament it, will be debating and Parliament it, will be voting. I mean, it's, not, it's all well and good having a Parliament versus the people election strategy but if you're a government that can only get things done through parliament and continually challenging parliament and refusing consensus it makes you a failed government and that is what I don't understand you know if you want to govern then this is not the way to handle parliament and they were hoping to get the general election quickly so the whole question of governing went out of the window but they don't control the timing of the general election. Yeah. Well, he wanted to cut and run, and instead now he's being held to account. And, and that is the, the crucial thing that's happened in the last few few days. And um, we're going to use the time, you know, I think, quite uh, quite interestingly. But presumably they're going to prorogue <laughs> again in, in advance of the Queen's speech. Am I getting that wrong? But will there be a Queen's speech? I don't know. Well, uh, well will there be a Queen's speech? Very good question. Uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg seemed to suggest today there still will be one. Um, you know, again, they wanted to use that as a chance, the pomp and the ceremony, you know, uh, Boris Johnson walking alongside the Queen. Uh, well, sort of not walking alongside her, but sort of, you know, coming in uh, to hear her speech. Uh, he might get a few stern words um, from the throne, perhaps. But he, you know, he thought that was all going to be the sort of the razzmatazz of the state opening. And then... Um, I, I doubt you know, she's amused by all of, of this. No, I mean, I mean, I, I do wonder, you know, given that she, she, you know, apparently hinted at her displeasure about David Cameron, um, you know, I think quite stupidly revealing you know conversations that he'd had with her he's got a book to um, sell. you know he doesn't have a book to sell but he really shouldn't have done it um you know what what must have the palace's reaction been to all of this and you know it's going to be one of the most extraordinary state openings if it does happen um you know with the speaker you know and, and everybody judge, uh, standing uh, there at the bar of the house and presumably the vote won't pass on the Queen's speech. I mean, I'm guessing. I mean, it's well, going to be a bit touching. Well, go. it will definitely be touch and go. And the thing is that, of course, the Queen's speech vote now is not an automatic vote of confidence in the way it was before because of the Fixed Term Parliaments Act. And um, you know, we keep coming back to this, but the reality is, is that. Um, if the Queen's speech falls, the government doesn't automatically fall or go into an election. Um, but, but, but yeah, Philip Stephen, this is extraordinary. You have a government that can't govern. A government that is being kept there because Parliament wouldn't get rid of it. Um, they have no guarantee of winning any votes, even a vote on the Queen's speech, their own Queen's speech. I mean that that, that that's that's yeah. extraordinary. Well, they've, they've lost seven. It's an, it's an they've lost seven. They've lost seven out of seven votes so far. I mean, it, it is extraordinary. And and actually, the other thing is, but at that the same time, they believe they can win an election. Well, well, it did, <laughs> so and actually, work? yeah, some polling has come out tonight to show that this is one of the most unpopular governments 
in recent history, um, even more unpopular than Theresa May's government. It's not polling from Labour HQ, is it? No, 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 this is is new polling that's come out tonight. It's polling from Ipsos Mori, and uh, they're very, very clear this evening, and I think that's quite some interesting evidence, because... Again, I think I think British people, whatever their views are on Brexit, whatever their views are on parties, left or right of the spectrum, there is a you know a pretty overriding sense of common decency amongst British people and fair play. In Wales, we say tag, fair play, um, and that's really at the heart of being British, I think. And a lot of people are looking at this and going, right. "Do you know what? This not is cricket. just wrong." Yeah, not cricket. This is just wrong, and it doesn't matter whether they agree with the policies or not. It's just plain wrong. It's the end of the podcast, and after a week like this, we all need to recharge. We always end by asking, what are we looking forward to for the coming weekend? What music, TV, latest rainy barbecues of the summer, or sporting events will help us decompress? Luckily, Philip and I no longer need to go to the Conservative Party conference, although we've both got our passes, so we might, we could turn up if we wanted to for some mischief. So, Stephen uh, Dowdy, what are you doing over the weekend? Cardiff City are away to Harlem Saturday. Optimistic? We're definitely not doing as well as I'd hoped um, this season. Um, I thought we'd be sort of, you know, up the top, getting ready to go back into the Premiership, but that's not been quite the way so far, but still a lot of time to turn that around. Um, obviously, Rugby World Cup is on, so um, be uh, catching up with that. I haven't had a chance to watch much of the, um, the footage so far, but um, obviously Wales's first game against Georgia went very well. Um, but I'm going to be going, actually, to a, a 40th birthday of one of my best friends, um, who we've been friends since about eight or nine years old. I don't know what happened in the intervening um, uh, years, um, but, um, yeah, and I've godfather to um, him and his wife's kids, and um, it should be a really nice occasion. So tuning out of politics. Yeah, definitely. Philip, how about you? What are you going to do with the time you would otherwise spend being pursued around Manchester, doing fringe events yeah, and yeah. Um, being part of the Boris Johnson fan club? Oh, I know. <laughs> oh well, what a thing to miss. Um, the, the, um, it's not too dissimilar to Stephen, actually. I, I will be catching up on the rugby like I did last weekend, um, but it's actually my own birthday. Hey. Happy uh, birthday uh, in uh, advance. On Saturday, and I've got a big event on, on Saturday, which will be... You uh, didn't invite me to your to, birthday, to, to, do you, by to, the way? To celebrate uh, on uh, Saturday afternoon, which I will talk more about next week. Well, that's, that's a teaser. Nice, that Te- a teaser, teaser for next week. Well, um, I am delighted, relieved... Whatever you want to say, I don't have to be part of the Brexit jamboree that will be happening at the Conservative Party conference. Go on, go um, on. Do you know I went? To, do you know I've been to Conservative Party conference? Um, really? Yeah. When I when I used to work for Oxfam, no, no, no. When I used to work for Oxfam, of course, went to Conservative Party conference to hold events there. Had some very interesting times. It was a little bit different um, than Labour conference when you have you know stalls selling you know pictures of Margaret Thatcher and the. Uh, Pro fur campaign and all this sort of stuff. It was a bit of a bit of a shock, but it was uh, it was interesting, eye opening. Well, it, it it is interesting. I mean, you know, J- Jacob Rees-Mogg at the Conservative Party conference is a demigod, yeah. and um, I'm delighted. You suggesting you never I, were I, Sam. at the Liberal <laughs> conference? I could be, <laughs> um, but I am looking forward to tuning out of all of that. Um, it's been an intense political week, and I just want to spend time with my kids. Very good. Yeah, good idea. 
And, and that's the end of this week's edition of On the House. We'll be back next week for another pint after the political week. Who knows what's going to happen? Make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast app. In the meantime, thanks to Stephen Doughty, MP. Thank you very much, Hoyle Fowler. It's goodbye from me, Philip Lee. And me, Sam Gima. We will see you next time. was presented by Dr. Philip Lee MP and Sanjima MP. Audio production was by Alex Reese, and the producer is me, Andrew Harrison. On the House is a Podmasters production. Yeah.